Great to see everybody back again today. I hope you enjoyed the snow from last week. Do y'all remember that? We had snow last Sunday. Um, that was a lot of fun, uh, especially for the, the about dozen of us that were here getting home afterwards. Most of us live really close by. Uh, but anyhow, it's great to be with everybody again today, um, back together again today. We are uh, in a series on the life of Joseph, and today we come to the second to the last, and next week we're actually going to try and wrap this up. Uh, but for um, this week, I wanted to take a look at Genesis chapter 47. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there. It's an interesting story that um, really doesn't get talked about or preached about very often, um, and it's where... Uh, Joseph is facilitating uh, giving out all the grain to the people of Egypt and the people of the region. And we kind of learn what happens to, for all the people and what, what uh, Pharaoh gathers as a result of all that. Um, and so the text we're going to read is the third time that the people come uh, to, jo well, they come to him over the course of the seven years of famine. God's told Joseph and he's told Pharaoh that there's going to be this famine that's going to take place. So for seven years, he wants them to put up grain for seven years. Then after that, we'll follow these years of famine. And so they've done all the stuff they need to do leading up to the years of famine. And now the famine's set in. And so the people come to him. And so we're reading the third thing that they come and bring to uh, Joseph and to Pharaoh as, in order to get some of the grain. So let's take a look at it together. Our text comes from Genesis 47, if you would. Let's stand to our feet. Genesis 47, reading verses 23 through 25. Verses 23 through 25, here we go. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a... Oh, sorry. We're not reading any further. All right. That's it. You can uh, have a seat. Thanks so much. Um, so uh, let's kind of dive in here. And what I want to do is start at, back at verse 13. Uh, start back at verse 13. And this is where the story actually begins, uh, where Joseph begins to dispense all the grain that the Egyptians' uh, government has been holding back. So let's take a look at it. Verse 13 it says, Now there was a, no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. Note the word that the Bible uses there to describe this famine. It uses the word severe, describes this famine as severe. I've got some pictures I've prepared for you here of some drought conditions. Um, and so you can imagine uh, we've got corn stalks that are stressed out. Uh, some of you have seen fields of cotton around here that look stressed out. Um, we've got dried up watering holes in some of the pictures. Drought creates these kinds of conditions where crops just simply are not going to grow. I mean, there's just not enough water landing on the fields to generate any sort of production. Many of us would remember the drought that occurred here in Georgia about a decade or so ago, back in 2008, 2009, somewhere around that time. Uh, there's some pictures of Lake Hartwell during that time. Literally, Lake Hartwell just pretty much emptied out. I mean, that was a major water source for the region. And so because of that, uh, Florida was suing Georgia because Georgia was withholding water from going downstream. Florida was experiencing the same drought. The governor of our state, Governor Purdue at the time, assembled lawmakers, assembled uh, uh, government leaders out on the steps of the Capitol building in Atlanta and repented of the sins of the people of Georgia and prayed and asked God to send rain. I mean, things had gotten to that sort of a dire situation. Well, these folks in Egypt, they didn't have any public works programs. They didn't have any lake reservoirs. What they had was a hope that rain would come tomorrow. Um, I helped a guy move a refrigerator on Thursday or Wednesday. I shouldn't have done that. So now I'm sitting on a stool here. Um, and so the famine, because of all this, was very severe. 
Um, It says in verse 13 that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So that whole region extending from uh, Egypt in the south all the way up into modern day Israel into what was called Canaan then, nobody was getting any rain anywhere in that whole part of the world. And so as a result of that, this famine had, um, had set in. Crops were dying. People in livestock were going hungry. The grocery store shelves were bare. There was no food to be found anywhere. Well, enter Joseph. Look at verse 14. And so Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. That is, the people brought money over the course of some years, the first four or so years of this famine. They brought their money to buy grain from the, from, for the year from Egypt because Egypt had so much they had set aside. And then they bought, they, he gathered up all this money in exchange for the grain that they bought. At this point, again, they were about four years into the famine. And after this time uh, of buying all this food and coming year after year, I mean, the money that the people had set aside, you know, had gone from their checking account, they, they you know, brought that down to zero. And now they brought their uh, savings account down to zero. They've been saving up some money to buy a new wagon. Maybe they've been um, you know, saving up some money to buy a new, uh, send their kids off to college or to build a new barn or whatever it was. But all of their resources that they had, all the financial resources that they had available to them have now, um, uh, have now dried up. And so these people are, are down to counting pennies. And they were hoping that the next year would be the year that everything turned around. But of course, Joseph and of course the Pharaoh knew that this thing's going to stretch out for seven years. Verse 15 says, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money's gone. I mean, you've seen our bank accounts. You know that our pockets are empty, that there's no money left. Not anywhere in this region. You've got it all. In fact, the grain bins that are now empty that you've emptied out to give us grain where you had stored them. Those are now full of all of our money, all of our cash. I mean, there's no money to be found in this whole region. The government has now got it all. And so the only thing we got left, Joseph, are livestock. And Joseph says, well, that's something. So look at verse 16. And so Joseph answered the people saying, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. Verse 17. And so the people brought the livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, for their flocks, for their herds, and for their donkeys. And he supplied them with food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. So now the Egyptian government, not only did they have all the money from that entire region, again, nobody's got anything in savings anywhere. Everything's been drained that everybody had. And so nobody's, there's no money anywhere. Now they also have all the flocks, all the herds, all the, all the animals. Now you and I know from Joseph's dream that this famine does not last for year, doesn't end at year four, doesn't end at year five. It drags on for two more years. Again, Joseph knows this. And so the question is, well, I wonder what else Pharaoh might get as a result of this dragging on famine for seven more years, or for full seven years. Verse 18, and says, And when that year was ended, they came to Joseph the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. Uh, you know that we don't have any money. And so the herds of our livestock are now my Lord's. I mean, you've got those in your possession now as well. Um, we gave those to you last year. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord. Notice that the people are now down to calling Joseph my Lord. I mean, this is a term of humility. This is a term of submission. This is a term where they're saying to Joseph, hey, look, we recognize that we're in a pretty desperate position here. I mean, this is the language of desperation, calling the one who has the goods that they need, my Lord. Um, Look at the pictures of the drought again. Uh, You can see some of those pictures. You imagine those corn stalks and nothing's producing. I mean, if I'm walking out of my house and that's what I'm seeing, that's what I'm greeted with every day, but the only way that I can feed my family is with what I produce off the land that I own. And so I'm not able to produce anything. And so what I'm left to is 
I have no way to feed my family. I have no way to pr provide for them. And so um, their concern is not, what about next year? Their concern is the present tense. The concern is right now. Um, these are a desperate people living in desperate times. You say, Gordon, if they're so desperate, why didn't they just raid the Egyptian storehouses? Makes sense, right? If the Egyptian government's got all these storehouses and they've got them all over the whole countryside, why not just go to those storehouses, raid those, and get the grain? I mean, that makes sense, right? Well, that's a really good question, but not everyone is suffering in Egypt the way the common man is suffering. Remember who is holding all the food? The government is. Which means that the government soldiers who are on the government payroll have access to that grain and now to those flocks. And so the government soldiers are very well fed. But not only are they well fed, but because the government storehouses are their source of food, these soldiers would be motivated to protect that source, their sustenance. So perhaps that's why the people didn't just raid the storehouses because they're guarded by Pharaoh's soldiers. I'm sure that they had garrisons that surrounded those, uh, those facilities. And so there are some highly motivated, well-fed soldiers standing in their way. Um, now, I suppose that if the government of Egypt had just sat on all those resources and was not willing to share that with the people of Egypt, um, that might have been a different story. If they were just willing to sit and watch their own people starve, I imagine the people probably would have raided those storehouses. But nevertheless, they don't rise up and revolt. So the people of the region, they come back to Joseph saying, we don't have anything left with which to barter. Uh, you've got all of our money. You've got all of our flocks, all of our goats, all our horses, everything that we have, all of our possessions, our worldly possessions, we have them. So they say, verse of, end of verse 18, there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but, I mean, the only thing we got are our bodies and our land. Um, and so they say in desperation, verse 19, buy us then, buy us, like purchase us, and the purchase price will be another year's worth of grain. Buy us and our land in exchange for food. So these people are willing to become slaves of Egypt. They are willing to sell themselves in order to gain one more day, one more summer, one more winter, one more year, in hopes that the next year will be the year when the heavens break loose and we're able to begin growing crops and supporting ourselves again. So there's the offer. We've got nothing left but our land and our bodies, that is, our labor. And so Joseph takes them up on their offer. Verse 20, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. That is, they deeded over every worldly possession that they had to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Not just the people of Egypt, but the people of the entire region experienced this. Verse 21, as for the people, Joseph made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Verse 23, behold, I have this day bought you, he says to them, and your land for Pharaoh. Joseph then says, this is how we're going to structure this deal. This is what this is going to look like going forward. There's going to come a year, next year actually, when we come out of this famine. Right now you're in a desperate situation. This is how we're going to structure the deal when we get to the good times again. Verse 24, um, at the harvest he said, you shall give a fifth, that is 20%. You're going to give 20% of your crop yield to Pharaoh. And four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. So Joseph implements, get this, a federal tax of 20% on the people of the entire region moving forward in perpetuity. Sound like a good deal, right? For Pharaoh. Um, 
Now, I think we can all agree that the Pharaoh got pretty, got pretty good on this, right? Seven years of famine, seven years of increasing pressure and desperation on the local population, and these people were literally at the point of willing to give away everything in order to gain uh, another day. They gave away their money, they gave away their assets, their flocks, and they finally even themselves because personhood for them was attached to land ownership. And when they gave over their, their land, they gave over their independence, they became tenants. They became tenant farmers submitting to taxation. So Pharaoh, he comes out of this golden, right? I mean, he is, uh, he's got more wealth than he could, and more power than he could have ever imagined was possible. I mean, he could not have manufactured a way for him to take this kind of power and this kind of prestige uh, into his uh, coffers. He's more wealthy and powerful than he ever thought was possible. The great irony is, maybe you notice this, that this wealth and this power that the Pharaoh has accumulated, that he did so by selling back to the people their own grain. Hmm, interesting. So for seven years, he had taken grain from the people, just took it, didn't pay him for it, just took it. Hey, I, you know, we're having seven years of plenty here. And everybody's like, well, there's extra around, so I guess the Pharaoh can put it away if he wants to. And then he sells that grain back to the people at a price of their liberty. And so Pharaoh sells them back their own grain um, and takes everything in exchange for it. Last verse, verse 25. And the people said, you have saved our lives. May it please our Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. And so the people thank Joseph for enslaving them. They ta for taking all their money and their flocks. They are so grateful to their government for being so smart, right? As to put all of their own grain away and then selling it back to them at a huge, huge price. Um, I'm surprised somebody didn't say, isn't that our grain in those storehouses? I mean, it did not dawn on anybody that that was the case, but in any case, um, nobody did. They went along with the program. All right, well, that's our text for today, um, which means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here, the most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? See, Gordon, other than me buying, going out and buying food insurance today, uh, what difference does any of this make to where I'm living and, you know, all the stuff going on in my life? That's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, there's a lot that stands out to me in this passage, and so I was thinking about, well, um, what, what is the, what, what's the Lord trying to communicate to us? What theological truth is God trying to pro provide us through this passage? What is he trying to show us? Um, one of the things that stands out in this passage, I'm sure, sure you picked up on it, was government, ex government expansion uh, is certainly in this story. Uh, you can't miss that part of the story. That's when people grow desperate. The government comes in and wants to be their savior, but there's always a price to be paid. Government dependency always results in a loss of freedom. That's fully on display here in this story. I mean, it's just one of the facts that rises out of this. And it's not necessarily evil. Please hear this. It's not necessarily evil for governments to do this. Think about this. This was God's man, Joseph who implements this plan to take over the power and the independence of the people of Egypt and the people of that region. And so the question for the masses then is, is that the kind of society that I want to live in? Are we willing to surrender freedom for security, freedom for things, something for us to think about? If you want to learn a little bit more about that, go and read John Locke, go and read James Madison. There's great information there, but I don't think that that's what this passage is about. Okay, so you can just breathe easy. Gordon's not going down that road today. Um, but I, I, I don't think that's what it's talking about. 
That's not the theological teaching that the scriptures are trying to provide to us here. What we also might note is that in this story are some insights into human desperation. I mean, who among us has not experienced feelings of desperation before? We've had physical illnesses that have come our way, financial crises, perhaps in our own family. Uh, We've had a child who's making bad decisions. Um, All of these induce feelings of desperation. But again, even though there are desperate people in this world, again, I don't think that's what this passage is trying to convey to us. I don't think that's why. Because if you think about it, there's so many stories in the Bible. There's so many stories in the life of Joseph. If you think about just the nine years that he was in prison, and the only story that we get out of those nine years is just one. There's this cupbaker that comes down and visits with him, and a, and a, and a, a cupbearer and a, and a baker that come down and visit with him. Um, there's scads of stories in the life of Joseph. There's, again, there's all, tons of stories in the life of Joseph that the Bible could have reported to us, but the Bible wanted us to know this story. And so my question is, again, well, why that story? And so I was kind of scratching my head about that this week, and I was praying and asking the Lord, what's the point of this passage? What are you wanting us to hear and to see and to know? What are you trying to teach us? And so I walked down to our youth pastor Kenny's office, and I said, you know what, I need, I need just for a few moments here, let me just think out loud. And so I share with them this story. I share with them, you know, what was going on and some of the details as I've shared them with you. And when I got done, I said, now you tell me, what did you hear? What do you think this story is trying to communicate to us? What does God want us to know? And he said, I think that that story shows what happens when you follow God's lead. I think that's what that story is about. And I thought for a moment, you know, Pharaoh did get blessed because he followed God's plan. Right? For seven years, he put away grain, just as God had instructed him to do. And, for, and just the same, Joseph and his family were elevated and taken care of and highly esteemed, again, because they followed God's plan all the way through. Think about it. For seven years, Pharaoh and Joseph stayed the course and put up grain. Do you suppose there were people after the first four years who said to them, I think we've got enough grain here, right? We've we've been building storehouses all around the whole Egyptian empire. These things are packed full. You're wanting to build more storehouses to fill more of those, to put away more grain. Pharaoh, I think that we're, I think we're good. I don't see any reason for, I mean, this stuff's going to rot by the time we finally get around to eating any, any of it. Pharaoh, don't you know that this has become a very expensive public works campaign? I mean, you are stretching the the finances of Egypt thin just to build more storehouses. These are your gems. This is your gold. This is your silver that you keep spending. And we're literally running out of it, Pharaoh. Would you please stop putting away more grain? And they could have listened to those voices. But instead, over the course of the seven years, they stayed the course, and they kept building more storehouses, and they kept putting away more grain, just as God had instructed. Look at Genesis chapter 41 and verse 48, just to help us get a sense of the scope of this building project that Pharaoh and Joseph engaged in over that first seven years of plenty as they were putting stuff away. It says... Uh, in verse 48, that Joseph gathered up all the food of the, se- of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. So they built storehouses. Don't miss this. In every city. How many cities do you think they had in the Egyptian empire of tens of millions of people? Uh, more than five right? And so in every city, they were building these storehouses. I mean, this was a huge, huge building project that went on and on and on for seven years, well in excess of what anybody thought was needed. 
but they just kept being faithful. They just kept doing what God had asked them to do. The point is, this was not a small project. It was a costly project. And again, it would have been easy for Pharaoh and Joseph to have stopped and said, you know what? You're right. We've done enough. We've got enough. That's good. We'll just go forward with what we got. But that's not what they did. Pharaoh and Joseph followed completely the plan of God. They put up grain all seven years. It says there in verse 49, And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it. For it could not be. They just stopped counting how much grain they had. There was so much grain that they had put away. You know, when you put that quantity of grain, and you do it in the sight of the public, I imagine, again, that a lot of people are going to, come around and say, hey, look, we're just wasting our time. We're just wasting our money here. But again, they kept being faithful. They kept putting it away. This reminds me of the story of Noah and his ark. It took him, experts believe, somewhere between 55 and 75 years to build the ark. That's 75 years of people dropping by and saying, Noah, you're crazy. Noah, what, what is this stuff you keep calling rain? I mean, how are we going to have a global flood? We never even, there's not even any clouds in the sky for, 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 for raindrops to fall from. We've never, they had never, remember, they had never seen rain before. And so the idea of a worldwide flood, I mean, this is ludicrous. But he kept building that giant boat. He was building it in his backyard. I'm sure that his kids didn't play really well with the other kids in town because, well, you know, their dad was crazy. I mean, all this talk about a worldwide flood, nobody had ever seen rain before, and there's Noah out there building his boat. He kept at it. He followed God's plan over somewhere around, you know, think about 75 years. This is a massive construction project out in his back, back 40 of his, of his property, um, just going up out there. You say, Gordon, I got a question for you. But he kept doing that, and he never wavered. Uh, you say, I got a question for you. Are you suggesting that if I do what God is asking me, if God asked me to go build a boat in my backyard, if I go do that, are you saying that God is going to bless me? That prosperity is going to follow behind what God is, you know, me following God's directions? No, friends, that's not what I'm saying. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah followed the plan of God. He went to the Israelites. He told them to surrender to the Babylonians who were on the horizon and bearing down on the Israelites, just like God had told him to do. He said, if you surrender, your lives will be spared. And where did that get him? Well, it got, got him thrown in jail. And then it got him thrown into, thrown into a well and left for dead. Jeremiah 20, 38 and verse 6 says, And they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern, that is, into a deep well. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. The people left him there for dead because he did what God asked him to do. Think about the Lord Jesus. He prayed in the garden, Father, are you sure that this is what you want me to do? And God the Father said, Yes. And so Jesus said, Look, not my will, but yours. And he followed through with what the Father asked him to do. And what did it get him? He got him nailed on a cross between two thieves. So no, following the plan of God is not a recipe for blessings and prosperity to flow into your life. However, it will lead us to becoming maximized for eternal things. And isn't that what we all want? For our lives to count for something greater than our own glory and our own consumption. I mean, I want for my life to be greater than the sum of its parts. That's what I want. And friends, when I get in line with God's will, then I'm on a trajectory for eternal impact. And so that leaves us with one question. That question is, how? How then do I find God's will? How do I know what it is that God is specifically asking for me to do? We know that God has a general will for all of us. It's spelled out right here in his word. But there are specific things that God wants for you and for me individually to accomplish and to do on his behalf. And so how do I get at that? How do I find what that is? 
When I was 12 years old, I went away to summer camp. And uh, the first night of summer camp, we all gathered together in kind of the, the main area. And we were having a service. And at the end of the service, I was sitting at the back with some of my buddies. And um, the pastor invited for people to come forward if they wanted to spend some time in prayer. And uh, I was, was white-knuckling on the bench in front of me. And I was not interested in going up to the front, but I just felt like the Lord was, something was going on. Something was stirring in my heart, and God was calling me and asking me to come up to the front. But I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of my friends, and so I just kept hanging on to that, that pew in front of me, and I wasn't going to come up there uh, and be recognized like that. And so I resisted the urge. But the second night, um, things were a little different. I had spent the whole day uh, thinking about that and thinking about how God was speaking to my heart and what, it, what was it that he wanted me to hear and uh, maybe I needed to put myself in a position where I could hear his voice more clearly and be able to respond to and receive what it was that he was saying. And so the second night of our gathering together, I went and sat up front. I sat in the third row back uh, on the inside aisle, and there was one guy sitting in front of me. All my buddies were still sitting wherever they were sitting, but I was going to sit up front, and I was going to hear whatever it was that God wanted. And if God wanted me to respond in some way, I was going to do that. And so the pastor got to the end of the service, and he invited people to come up, and I just closed my eyes. And I said, Lord, I said, if the guy in front of me will go forward, <laughs> then I'll go forward too. And wouldn't you know, just as soon as I opened my eyes, that guy stepped out. And without any hesitation at all, 12 years old, without any hesitation at all, I remember just following that guy down the, down the aisle. And I hadn't gotten two steps when I heard the voice of the Lord say, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And friends, that was my call to do what I'm doing today. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Now, here's what I want for you to take from that story. To find God's will, we have to place ourselves in the path of God's voice. We have to place ourselves where we hear, where we can hear and be ready to respond to what God wants us to know. Spending time in God's Word, spending time in deep-seeking prayer, turning off the TV, putting away the phone, setting aside distractions, those are all ways for us to quiet our hearts, to sit in that inside aisle, to hear what is, what, to be ready to receive and to hear God's voice when He speaks to us. God is not into competing with screens. He's not into competing with TV. He's not into competing with people and other voices. And you know, after... Seeking after God's will is not just an exercise for those who are young, who are starting out in life. Seeking the will of God is something for all ages. In just a couple of weeks, our church will host virtually all of the missionaries that we support. I don't mean virtually they'll be here. I mean they will, they will really be here. Um, and over the course of a weekend, we'll hear from them. Our teenagers will have some special time with them. And we're asking each of our households to ask the Lord, what would you have me pledge in the coming year toward missions? This is something completely new. Our church has never done anything like this before. It's coming up in late February. And so we're inviting each of us to listen to the Lord, to give us a number that we are going to give over the course of the coming year. Perhaps we want to know how the Lord would have us handle a difficult family situation or how we need to confront somebody at work and we just don't know how to do it. We don't know the right way to go and the right steps to take. And so we want to know, God, I want to know what you know. Would you please share that with me? God is a wise God, friends. He's an all-seeing, all-knowing God. I mean, he knew about the seven years of famine before it happened. Isn't that wonderful that we serve a God like that? And not only do we serve a God like that, but we have access to him. And he wants us to know what he knows. 
Um, Joseph, and so Joseph made the preparations. And if this is the God that we serve, then doesn't it make sense, friends, that we periodically stop what we're doing and ask him, Lord, what do you know that I don't? What perhaps is coming my way that I'm unaware of and that I need to make preparations for? Because God, I know that you know, and I know that you want for me to know. Friends, people spend hordes of money, thousands of dollars, going to astrologers and palm readers and all kinds of crazy stuff, trying to figure out, trying to know what it is that's coming. Friends, we have a God who knows that information. And he, has, and he says, look, this stuff is available to you. All you have to do is position yourself where you can be quiet and hear my voice, and I will speak to you. All right, let's sum up. Joseph served a God who knew the future like we know the past. God gave special knowledge and special revelation about the future to Joseph and to Pharaoh, and those men faithfully executed and followed God's instructions. Now that same bounty of knowledge is available to you and me, and so how do we access it? By simply powering down and giving space for the Holy Spirit of God to speak into our heart and into our mind. It may come quickly. It may take a little while. But friends, God wants for us to know what he knows. He is not holding it back from us. We simply need to be quiet long enough to hear him speak. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us from your word today. We thank you for this story that you have placed in this book that is intended to draw us unto you. Lord, in this quiet time this morning, may your Holy Spirit instruct us and how you want for us to find that quiet space, and when you want for us to find that quiet space, Lord, so that we can hear your voice loud and clear. As we gather around this table this morning, we are reminded, Lord Jesus, of your broken body and of your shed blood. We are a people who are grateful. It is by your death and your resurrection that we even have access to God the Father. Lord, as we quiet our hearts before you today, may your Holy Spirit speak. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.